and tea at the end of the service. But this, this morning, our passage is will be coming from Romans 3, and we're looking at 19 down to 26. So it'll be real helpful if you get your Bible back out, so you can see that all that I'm saying flows from God's word, and is not man's mere opinion, but God's truth. Before we come to hear his word expounded, let us seek his help that he would illuminate our eyes to see his glory. So let's just pray before we come to our passage. Father, we thank you that you're a God that reveals yourself. We thank you that you condescended to us and gave us your word that we may know you, that we may be right with you, that we may find comfort in your Son alone. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us understanding, for your word is clear, but we are slow to learn, and we are forgetful people. So as we're reminded of our misery and our comfort, would you rejuvenate our hearts to delight in you afresh this morning? Help us from being distracted and wondering, but help us have content hearts that are open to hear your word and to rejoice in it this morning. Amen. In our passage this morning, the big idea or the main point that we're going to see is that our misery comes through the law and our comfort in the gospel. So the law shows us our misery and the gospel declares to us our comfort and hope. And so with this in mind, as we come to our passage, I wonder if you've ever been asked this question, do you want the good news first or the bad news first? I don't know about you, but I'm a bad news first type of person, and so is Paul, as we're going to see in our passage this morning. And so we will be told the bad news and then the good news. Our misery is though will be exposed and then our comfort shown. And so our first section, the bad news, the law condemns all. The bad news, the law condemns all. And that'll be verses 19 down to 20. But as we come to 19 and 20, we must recognize that they come at the end of Paul's argument. Paul started this argument that no man will be made right through his own works way back in chapter 1, verse 18, and it spanned all the way through the chapter 3 and verse 20. And so we come in at the conclusion of his arguments. And the conclusion that Paul has come to is that the law of God condemns sinful man, and sinful man cannot be justified, made right with God through it. For the law exposes sinfulness, rather than vindicates us, it condemns us. And so with that in mind, let's just read verse 19. Follow along with me. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. I want us to think about what the law has been saying 
For in our verses, we see the end result. The end result being that every mouth is shut and all the world is held accountable to God or are, are guilty before God. And so to see what the law has been saying, we have to ask a couple of questions. The first question we ask is, who is the law speaking to? Or verse 19, 19 tells us, all those who are under the law. Well then, who is under the law? Again, our passage tells us the whole world is under the law. The whole world is accountable to God. The whole world is guilty before a holy God. And so let's explore this reality more. The whole world is under the law and therefore held accountable, guilty before God. And I want us to explore this reality by thinking about two individuals the first individual being a, a guy who lives in Belfast, who has never stepped foot into a church and never read one word of God's words. How can he be under the law of God and accountable to God and guilty before God? Or we could think about an individual who lives in the desert in Mauritania, who has never met a Christian in their life never mind heard the Bible read, how can they be under the law of God, accountable to God, and guilty before God? And to explore this truth, we will think about what Paul has already been saying. Because remember, we come at the end of his argument. He has been building to this point. And so I want to highlight two of his arguments that has come before our verses the first thing I want us to see is that Paul tells us that all, man, all mankind is made in the image of God. Therefore, all mankind has the law of God written on their hearts. Ecclesiastes 7.29 said, God has made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made man in his image, therefore implanting his law upon their heart, but then in Adam, we sinned, and the image of God was distorted, and therefore, rather than seek God, we suppress his truth, though our consciences still bear witness against us, for we were made in the image of God. And that's what Paul says, we cast your eyes down to chapter 2, 14, uh, chapter two verse 14 and 16, he says this, for when the Gentiles, the Gentiles being the rest of the world, so you have the Jews, God's people, and then the Gentiles, so everyone else. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And we're going to see that our conscience will not excuse us, but rather accuse us. It will condemn us because we know what we should do, but because of unrighteousness, we suppress the truth of God. So the first thing we see that we're under the law of God because we're made in the image of God and the law was written on our heart but it's distorted because of our sinful natures. Secondly, we see Paul tell us 
that the whole world is accountable to God because the heavens bear witness against us. For in nature, the wrath and glory of God is seen. And that's what Paul says all the beginning, all the way back at the beginning of his argument. Verse 18 of chapter one, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who by the unrighteousness suppress the truth. Therefore, we must agree that the whole world is under the law and therefore accountable to God and found guilty before him. None can escape this reality and every mouth will be shut. There will be no excuses on the day of judgment. And that imagery of our mouth being shut, I kind of think about, imagine the criminal who is caught on CCTV, and so they're arrested, they're brought into the interview room, and they get up the wee laptop, and they show you the video, and the camera zooms in, and you can see his face clear as day, and you see him commit the crime and then run away. His silence is deafening because he has been laid bare. There is no excuse. It's clear as day that he has committed the crime. And that will be true for all who are outside of Christ. But think about it, it'll be worse because we won't be standing before another man who is judging us, but rather we will be standing before the God of the universe who is the Alpha and the Omega, who is all-knowing, and he will pierce through all our lies and excuses, and our hearts and our sins will be laid bare before him. That is the reality that waits those who do not know Christ. That is the reality that waited us once before we knew Christ. The law of God condemns us. This is our misery. And then Paul will drill down deeper into man's misery through the law in verse 20. So look with me. Verse 20, it says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul repeats here what has already been made clear. The law of God condemns rather than justifies. Why? For the law of God is a hard taskmaster. No one wants to be under the law of God. For what does the law of God demand? It demands personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. As James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the law, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty off it all. Or think about how Jesus summarizes the law in Matthew 22, 37, 39. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then goes on to say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are just lying to yourself if you believe that you can keep the law. The law of God crushes sinners. We cannot keep it, for we are by nature's sinners. And that's what we see Paul reinforce just before our verses in verse 9 and 10. He says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, 
are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Man will not be justified by the law of God, but rather the law of God will expose man's sinfulness. And all are under the law of God. All are either in Christ or in Adam. If you're in Adam, you're under the law of God and you will be condemned. And so Paul says the purpose of the law is not to justify, but rather expose. And I always think about the law exposing as when I used to work in SPAR, we used to have this like wee magic pen and people would come in and try to give us fake notes. And so you would draw on it with the pen And if it was true, there'd be nothing there. If it was fake, it would bring a line and it would expose its counterfeitness. The law does likewise to our self-righteousness. The law exposes us for what we are, sinners. Therefore, through the law of God, we are shown our misery and guilt. And as we come to the end of our first section, I just want to draw out two points of application. First of all, a question may be rising in your mind, is the law of God bad then? Is the law of God a bad thing? No, the law of God is good if used lawfully. First Timothy 1 and 8, that's what Paul says. But what is the lawful use of the law? It is not to justify sinners. Rather, it exposes sinners. Paul will say that the law is good, just, and holy. And the problem for us is that we're not good, just, and holy. We're wretched sinners. Therefore, the law condemns us. But the law within itself is good. And it's so good at its job, that's why sinners don't like it, because it exposes us. And then the second point of application is, I just want us to recognize our sinfulness. I want to speak firstly to the believer. We need to remember that this is our misery. This was once our state before Christ Jesus. We were helpless, hopeless, and exposed before a holy God without an advocate. And we were stumbling around in the darkness, rebel sinners. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 11. He says, you were once like them dead in your sins and trespasses. And so it's good for us to be reminded of our misery. Why? Because sometimes we can fall into thinking more highly of ourselves than is actually true. And we start to trust in our own works. And that leads to us taking our eyes off of Christ, which is just a recipe for disaster. Therefore, let these verses be a reminder to you that without Christ, we are nothing. Let this truth drive you outside of yourself to Jesus Christ, your comfort. And then secondly, you who do not know Jesus, I want you to know that this is what awaits you. If you continue to trust in yourself and deny Christ, this is your misery Do not believe the lie that God will accept you because you're trying your best. God's law demands perfect, perpetual obedience. Know that by the works of the law, no man will be made right with God. Rather, you will be sentenced to hell for all eternity. 
because God is love, he will send you to hell for all eternity, for he will by no means clear the guilty. This is the bad news, but there is good news. The good news of the gospel that redeems. In the gospel, sinners find their comfort. I know that the first section is hard to listen to, and it should be hard to listen to, for it's hard to be told that you're a rebel sinner exposed by God's law heading to hell, and there's absolutely nothing you yourself can do. But if we water down the seriousness of God's law, his holiness, and our sinfulness, we diminish the beauty of the gospel. Rather, we should allow the law to expose our sinfulness and misery, though we shouldn't wallow in it and stay there and unnecessarily burden ourselves, but rather allow it to expose us, to drive us outside of ourselves, to look to the gospel, our comfort. The gospel is all the more glorious when you recognize how much of a wretch you were, how holy God is, but yet in his mercy and grace, he sent Christ Jesus to die for sinners that we would be treated as beloved sons. And so the bad news, the law condemns all and shows us our misery. Now the good news, the gospel redeems. The gospel redeems. What are we looking at? Verses 21 down to 26. We're firstly this read, verse 21 and 22. Follow along with me. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul is coming back to the gospel after having shown that by the law of God, no man will be made right with God. But with the gospel, there is good news for sinners. For at the heart of the gospel is the righteousness of God, which supplies all that sinful man needs. And we see this connection that Paul is coming back to the gospel because he uses the same terminology that he was speaking of in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Just cast your eyes down here and see this kind of bookend of the righteousness of God at, in between the, the sinfulness of man being exposed by the law. He says in uh, 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so this but is a contrast that he is turning now from the misery of the law to the good news of the gospel. And we see that because at the heart of the gospel is the righteousness of God. But before kind of unpacking what the righteousness of God means, I just want to kind of think about what 
Paul means when he says that it has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What Paul is saying is that the Old Testament saints were saved by faith in the righteousness of God, but it has been revealed in its fullest sense now in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what he means when it has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament scriptures, bear witness to it. In the Old Testament, we have gospel promises, but they're in the the like of shadow and types. But now we see it in all its glory through beholding the person and work of Christ Jesus. And that's what we're going to seek to do now. Behold the righteousness of God by beholding Christ Jesus in all his beauty. And we're going to do this by asking two questions. Firstly, what is the righteousness of God? And how do we receive the righteousness of God? So firstly, what is the righteousness of God? Again, we'll just read verses 21 down to 26 and just let the text speak for itself and wash over us. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the righteousness of God, what is it? There's there'll be four points and we'll just walk through the text to kind of help us understand what the righteousness of God is and what it does for us. The first point is the righteousness of God is Christ Jesus. It is found in his person and work. We see that in verse 22 when it says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You will not receive the righteousness of God apart from Christ. We only receive it through being joined to him for then we get the benefits of his works. The second point is the righteousness of God is the grounds for our justification. We see that in verse 23. Following on, Paul says, and we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus gets us justification through his works. His righteousness is the grounds for our justification. I thought that the Baptist Catechism helpfully summarizes what justification is, which also helps us to see that uh, the righteousness of God is the grounds for our justification. In question 36, it says, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Why? Only for the righteousness of Christ 
impute it to us. Impute it means this, account it to us. Or think about how you're clothed. Christ clothes us in his righteousness, and that's why God accepts us. And then it goes on to say, and we receive it by faith alone, and we'll look at that in a minute or two. But we see that the righteousness of God is the grounds for our justification, for he clothes us in his righteousness. And then the third point we see, the righteousness of God is part of the redemption that Christ Jesus accomplishes for his people. The righteousness of God is part of the redemption that Christ Jesus accomplishes for his people. We see that as we just read in the latter half of verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Then the fourth point is the righteousness of God involves Christ being a propitiation for his people. And we see that in verse 25. In Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And just before moving on, I think it's helpful to define terms. I want us to think about it. What does it mean for Christ to be our propitiation? We don't use propitiation in our everyday lives, but it's a key theological term that we should understand. And so I think the NIV helpfully translates it by saying um, the word propitiation as atoning sacrifice. It kind of helps us know what it's talking about. So Christ to be his people's propitiation means that he satisfies the wrath of God on our behalf through the shedding of his blood. We see that link when it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation, how? By his blood. And we could also think about the link to the Old Testament bearing witness to the righteousness of God. The most obvious is the Passover Think about it. How does God's wrath pass over the Israelite people? Well, they slaughter the lamb and they put the blood over the doorposts. And so that is a type that is pointing forward to Christ Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so in Christ's propitiation, instead of our blood being shed, us receiving eternal death, Christ takes the punishment of God's law upon himself. For we see in Romans 6 and 23, the wages of sin is death. And without Christ, we were waiting an eternal death sentence. But in the gospel, we see that Christ redeems his elect by dying for them. He takes our place but he does not only satisfy the demands of the law and the punishment of the law, he also fulfills it on our behalf. And so we see that the right, what the righteousness of God is, is Christ Jesus fulfilling the requirement of God's law on our behalf and Christ Jesus satisfying the penalty and guilt of God's law on our behalf. You see, those two things, we were exposed, condemned, found guilty, and so Christ satisfies that for us through his death, but we are still left with the problem that we need a righteousness, 
And if we cannot obtain a righteousness through the law of God, we are helpless. And so in the gospel, Christ then fulfills the law on our behalf and gives us his righteousness. I always find it helpful to think about the great exchange when we think about this doctrine of imputation or the righteousness of Christ being a tribute to us. We have on one hand a sinner who is condemned by the law and has no righteousness of his own. But we have an all-sufficient Savior in Christ who, what does he do? He propitiates for us, so he satisfies the wrath of God on behalf of his people. So we take our guilt and our penalty and we put it upon Christ and he receives it and satisfies it, so we are pardoned but yet we're left without righteousness. And if we're left to do righteousness by ourselves, that is not good news, it's bad news. So what does Jesus do? He perfectly lives for us. And then he puts his righteousness upon us. Think about it. He cleanses us in his blood and he clothes us in his righteous robes. There's the heart of the gospel. That is our comfort. That is your comfort if you know Christ. And no one, absolutely no one, not even yourself, can snatch it out of your hands. For as Christ is holding you, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are Christ Jesus. The bad news is horrific, but the gospel is glorious. That is our comfort. Praise be to God. So, our final question. If that is the gospel, how do we receive it then? How do we get this if we don't already have it? But it's helpful to be reminded, how do we get the righteousness of God? Well, we read the latter half of 22 and 24. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Why does Paul bring back up that we all fall short of the glory of God? He is reinforcing that by the works of the law, we will not be made right with God. But rather, in contrast, we get the righteousness of God as a gracious gift, meaning we are given it not because of anything that was lovely within us, but because of his free, unmerited favor. And it wasn't like we worked for it, because Paul will go on in chapter four to say, if you work for it, then it is your due. This hope of the gospel is a gracious gift. And as I was thinking about how can we think about we don't work for gifts, I was just thinking about Halloween. I don't know if your kids come to your door and they said, trick or treat. You didn't say, well, a couple pounds for some sweets. You give them a free gift of sweets to them. The kids don't work for it. You just freely give it. That's how you receive a gift. No one gets down at Christmas morning and your parents say, well, this is the bill. It's a free gift. That's the same about the gospel. We do not work for it, but God freely and graciously gives it to us. And so we receive this gracious gift 
of the righteousness of God by faith alone. So it's a gracious gift that we receive freely and we receive it by faith alone. We see that in verse 22 where it says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then in verse 24, it says, whom God put forth as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then in verse 26, it says, so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. We bring nothing to the table of salvation. As the old hymn writer says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It is by faith alone that we receive the righteousness of God. But what is faith? Faith is passive and it's instrumental, meaning that faith is receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone. It's receiving and resting. That is what faith is. It's not our faithfulness, because that goes back to the works of the law, and that is bad news, but rather it is receiving and resting in Christ Jesus. And then it's instrumental in that it unites us to Jesus. It's not the faith itself that is the comfort or what saves us, but rather it's the object of our faith. And the object of our faith is our all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, our comfort in life and death is that we do not belong to ourselves, but wholly belong to Jesus Christ. Our comfort comes not from ourselves, but from Jesus. The gospel isn't what we do, but what Jesus Christ has done. And praise be to God, for that is good news. That's what we rest upon. And so just to finish, I want to make, give us three encouragements from the good news of the gospel. The first encouragement is simply rest in Christ. Stop striving. Stop burdening yourself or thinking you need to do more. Remind yourself that it is not through the works of the law that we are justified, but rather through the perfect obedience of Christ. Therefore, rest in your comforts. Second encouragement, allow the comfort that we have in the gospel to be the fuel for our Christian walks. Allow the comfort that we have in the gospel to be the fuel for our Christian walks. Live in the goodness of the gospel, for the more that you dwell on the loveliness of Christ Jesus, the more you will become like him. Let us be like Moses, who was in the presence of the Lord so much that his face shone. Let us commune with the Lord Jesus so much that Christ-likeness comes out from us, that we reflect the Lord Jesus through communing with him. And then thirdly, never move past the gospel. The gospel is our life source. We should long to behold Christ every day 
and especially every Lord's Day, we should come expecting to be shown Jesus and his beauty, and we should settle for nothing less. And then every morning we should wake up and we should go afresh to the gospel, that we would be rejuvenated, our souls would be refreshed, and we would have joy anew. Do not let Satan deceive you into thinking that somehow you move past the gospel. Somehow you get to a point of maturity, and now it's on to the law. The law has a place in the Christian life, but it's in the hand of Christ, and the life source that we do the law is through the gospel. You never move past the gospel. We start by the gospel, we're sustained by the gospel, and we will finish in the gospel. In a million years, when we have been in heaven, we still will not have plumbed the depth of the majesty and the beauty of the gospel. We will then see, not by faith, but by sight, and we will still look upon the face of Jesus and be mind-blowing of his beauty and loveliness. It will take eternity. We can never plumb the depth of the beauty of the gospel, so why do we think in this life that we don't need the gospel? And so I encourage you, keep on delighting in the gospel. Keep on feasting upon the gospel. For when we stop feasting upon the gospel, we will become weary and weak. Therefore, keep on feeding upon Christ Jesus by faith. What a brilliant illustration would we'll do that in the Lord's table. We are going to, by faith, feed upon Christ. And by his spirit, he is going to sustain us. Christ Jesus is our only substance that will endure to the end. And so, let us continually rest in Christ Jesus our comfort. The gospel is good news for sinners. Therefore, let us rest in it, for we never move past it. Thanks be to God that we know Christ, and he knows us, and he will keep us to the end. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we cannot express our thankfulness to you for what we have received in your son. And so we just simply say with the psalmist, we love you and we know that we love you because you first loved us. Help us just to keep on delighting in that gospel. Keep refreshing us by your spirit as we behold your beauty and glory in the face of your son, Christ Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. We are now going to stand and sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. And this is though be before Jimmy comes up and leads us in communion. And maybe you've come in and you didn't see at the table that we're taking communion. And if you want to take part, this would be a good time when we're saying this to, to walk on down, grab it, and come back to your seat. Um, it'd be sweet. And so I'll sit down, and Jimmy's will come up and lead us after we sing the first couple of verses of Nothing But the Blood of Jesus.